What's up, everybody? This is Saman Iskari, and welcome to the Hyphenated American Podcast. On this podcast, I'm going to have conversations with people who at some point in their lives came to the U.S. from their countries of origin in search of the American dream. I'm going to talk to various experts, entrepreneurs, CEOs, scientists, and otherwise ordinary people with inspiring stories. My goal is to not only have engaging and timely conversations and learn about what these people do, but to also show that even though their stories might feel a bit different than those of native-born Americans, they're all truly American stories. I myself moved to the U.S. when I was 11. And when I was growing up here, I always felt like I never quite fit in. I did make friends and played basketball and did many of the things normal American kids do, but I was always the Iranian kid with the weird name. Even after I grew up and got two master's degrees and started working in the tech field in the Bay Area, I still felt that my name and appearance made me seem like I may not be as American as quote-unquote real Americans. But I'm as American as the next guy. My family and I choose to live in this country. America does have its challenges, just like all other countries, especially when we talk about U.S. foreign policy, the healthcare system, gun regulation, immigration. There are a lot of disagreements there. But at the end of the day, there's no other place that would feel like home or that I would choose to call home. That's why I want these conversations to be captured, for people to know that many of the immigrants that call America home are making significant contributions to America. They're well-integrated, they're creating jobs, and they're contributing to various fields at very high levels. And they're all part of what makes America great. All right, now that you know what this podcast is all about, let's dive right into the first episode. My guest today is Dr. Afsana Nahavendi. She is an Iranian-American professor, author, and thought leader in the fields of leadership, organizational behavior, and cross-cultural studies. She's currently a professor and the department chair of leadership studies at the University of San Diego. One of her five books, The Art and Science of Leadership, is one of the best-selling leadership textbooks in the U.S., Dr. Nahavendi has a robust publishing and research portfolio and has given numerous speeches and presentations on various subjects related to her expertise. I really enjoyed my conversation with her, so without further ado, here's Dr. Nahavendi. I'm here with Dr. Afsana Nahavendi. Dr. Nahavendi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. You're an Iranian-American thought leader, expert in the field of leadership studies and organizational behavior. Um, I'm actually very excited to talk to you today because I find the concept of leadership uh, really interesting. Uh, Understanding what makes a great leader, different styles of leadership, cultural influences on leadership, uh, corrupt leadership are all very relevant and and fascinating topics. Uh, But before we get into all of that, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, your background uh, mm-hmm. You have a very interesting background. You immigrated to the U.S. in the 70s. You grew up in Iran, uh, went to French-speaking schools, have an interesting family background. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more um, and start there? So I'm part of the many generations that were kind of here when the revolution happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, you know, part of the generation in Iran of women, particularly, who grew up in a very westernized country. Anything was possible. Uh Equality was handed to us 
uh, through legal systems and, you know, that government. So grew up thinking, well, this is what life is going to be. And this, you know, I can do anything I want to be. Um, came to the United States to go to school um, and uh, the revolution happened. So could not go back. And I have not been back in 40 years. I went to a French school, anyone, uh, Lycée Razi, which was in Tehran. Quite a few people know it from my generation anyway. Um, and it, um, you know, partly because my parents were French speaking, they wanted to make sure that I continue that. It was a great school. So I went there. I should have probably gone to a French speaking country to the university. Um, but, um, I happened to get married and, or at least fall in love with somebody who was in the United States. So <laughs> I, I came to this part of the world and, uh, I stayed, uh, I stayed, I, I was at the university of Utah then transferred to the University of Denver, and then went back to the University of Utah for my PhD. Wonderful, wonderful. So when I talk to a lot of Iranian-Americans, they're very nostalgic about uh, yeah. the uh, 70s uh, in Iran and how there were a lot of freedoms and mm -hmm. things were really looking up. There was a lot of economic development. Um, so why did the revolution happen if, if everybody was so happy and everything was so rosy and great? <laughs> you know, it's, I mean, they're, gosh, I'm not a historian or a right. scientist, but um, the social and economic freedoms were certainly there. Equality between various religions, ability to access, you know, resources, freedom of uh, religion, freedom of movement, a whole bunch of things were there. What, did not catch up as nicely was the political freedom. So right. you could say anything, you could worship anyone, um, you could travel, you could dress the way you wanted, especially in larger cities. But that divide between the urban areas and the rural areas was very, probably very broad. Um, and the political freedoms didn't catch up. So that political system, the democracy did not come as fast. So all of us who were studying about the world and reading newspapers and seeing movies and, you know, learning about the world openly did not often see what was happening, the same things that we were expecting happening. And then there were, of course, some, you know, external political, geopolitical issues that happened. But it, it was that, you know, kind of division between the very quick modernization on many levels and maybe not on others. And then you had a large group of people who were still very traditional um, so kind of a country that was just bursting at the seams on a various places, but not all together going in the same direction. You add geopolitical pressures on top of that. Um, yeah, it was a happy time for many. There clearly weren't a lot of political freedoms. Got worse. You know? right, right, so right. be careful what you ask for. When people were hoping for improvement, they lost the political freedoms. They didn't gain any political freedoms and they lost the social and religious and all the other ones that we enjoyed when we were growing up. Right, right. So um, when you moved to the States, obviously, uh, when and when the re revolution happened, there was a lot of uh, tumultuous um, activities, to say the least, in terms of, you know, the Iran-U.S. relations and the hostage crisis happening and the perceptions, uh, perception of Iranians in, in the U.S., did you personally face any kind of uh, prejudice, for lack of a better word, or any kind of hostility when you, you know, first moved? Not, not very broadly. Um, it occasionally would pop up a couple of times. People would say, "Oh, you're, you're, you sound Iranian. You're from that during the hostage crisis." Um, we were in Utah then, and interestingly, the Mormon Church 
was very, very protective and active. Uh, you know, we had quite a few of our friends who came to us and said, if anybody ever bothers you, come tell me. You know, we have, we're a tight community. We don't want this to happen. So I did not feel it that extremely. I mean, it was, you know, there were the things. I mean, we had to line up and register as Iranians. Uh, oh, wow. We, yeah, yeah. I don't think people are aware of that. We literally had to declare ourselves. They wanted to make sure that people weren't staying in this country illegally. Uh, some hints of what we're seeing now. Uh, but it was well handled. It was not, you know, I mean, it's understandable. You, the, the United States was officially invaded. When you invade somebody's embassy, it is an invasion of a country. Um, so there was a little bit of trouble, and uh, we lost our passports, my husband and I. So we were political refugees here for quite a bit. Oh, wow. uh, so we did feel that. But interestingly, those people, those among us who were not there legally, did not line up to get registered. And those of us who were still legal then lined up and got registered as Iranian Americans. Um, there were about 150 of us at the University of Utah then. It wasn't that distinct. I, I think what's happening now, and I live in California, so it's pretty liberal and it's pretty welcoming of diversity. But what's happening now in some ways is worse than what was there before. Right, um, right. And um, I assume you're referring to the um, travel ban as well as... Travel ban, hostility, you know, when, when it's not broad, uh, but you do feel, you know, suddenly Iran for 40 years now has been persona non grata, it's been the enemy, it's been the country that everybody dumps on, um, and kind of throwing out the baby with the bathwater, the rest, those of us who are here, are here because the same, the same reason <laughs> this country is not functioning. But, but I think at that time, there was still so much um, goodwill from what had happened in previous years. The relationships with Iran were so good for so long that there were so many people who remembered that goodwill, that that one incident that was horrendous with the hostage taking didn't color it so fast. I see. I um, see. I think now it's been 40 years of lack of relationships, hostility, stereotypes back and forth. Um, you know, the government in Iran is certainly not friendly to us, to the U.S., and we're not friendly to them. So I think there's been kind of a building. There are a lot of generations here who see nothing, who have never seen anything but a hostile Iran. Yeah, um, that's really unfortunate because uh, that has created a big misconception in terms of what Iranians uh, are like, especially yeah. Iranian Americans. We're, first of all, we're highly secular people. Uh, exactly. Iran is obviously... Um, associated with its religion and its theocracy. Uh, but when you look at Iranian Americans, we're highly secular, we're highly progressive. Uh, we contribute at very high levels to various fields in the U.S. Um, one thing we haven't done well, I think, is contribute to civic life. And we've kind of shied away from civic life. And I think that partly has to do with this... Um, this misperception or, or shying away from our own identities and being public about it and saying we're Iranian because it's, you know, that word. And, we and that, person, so half the people don't quite know what that means. Right, right exactly. And I, I don't know, I kind of take issue with that because I, I feel like we, we're Iranian and we shouldn't own up to it. Uh, Persian is sort of, um, it's, an, it's an ethnic background. I'm sure you know more about this than I do. But Iran, I think, is much more of a uh, broader term. Um, I myself, for example, I doubt I, I'm Persian if we go back enough uh, in history. My uh, mother's family comes from Azerbaijan and, and all of that. So 
uh, and and I noticed that your family background uh, is uh, your your family comes from Rasht. Yes, both and, my mom and dad grew up in Rasht. Yeah, and my we uh, have Central Asian genes somewhere, you know, from the, kind of the northern, the southern Caucasus there. Right, um, right, and my my dad's family is is from Rasht as well. Yeah, so that's yeah. <laughs> yeah identity as Iranians, and I think maybe part of that is my generation that came wasn't as used to contributing to civic life. You know, we weren't, we didn't grow up in a democracy. Um, this younger generation, your generation, my kids' generation, hopefully is going to start taking that up um, because it does make a difference. You know, I think it, in California particularly, there's such an Iranian presence. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know, the, the, the group of individuals who left Iran, who settled in the U.S., by and large, brought a lot of social, financial capital with them. They were in, well-educated, they often, not often, not a lot of them had financial means, so they were already pretty well-established in society. So it really is important that they take up their civic duty. We need to run for office. We need to start being active. You know, uh, Hopefully we all vote, those of us who can and our citizens vote. But uh, it, it really is an important thing because I think it will establish us much better. Absolutely. And I think... Most successful groups in the U.S., most successful migrants. So. Exactly, exactly. It's funny you, you mentioned that because I think uh, participating in, in civic duties and, and, and democracies kind of runs counter to yeah. how Iran and Iranians have functioned historically, right? There was always somebody at the top and, you know, you didn't really get to participate. And, you know, so I don't, I don't think it's, you know, as much part of our kind of makeup in ways, but, uh, you know, this issue of being open to the rest of the world has been part of Iran forever. Right. Uh, I have a lot of friends who travel from Europe, uh, Danes, uh, some Canadians from here, closer home to home. Everyone who's gone to Iran has said, oh, my gosh, you know, they are welcoming and warm and the young people are eager and they're educated. So that stereotype of that the government has created is, you know, anybody who gets it's like, oh, this, this <laughs> Clearly, there are some weird people in every society, but by and large, the society is eager to connect with the West and the young, you know, it's a very young population in Iran. So they are dying to expand and fly away. Yeah, that's the other mis- misperception out there, right? When Americans ask me, oh, how would I be treated when I go to Iran? I would, I tell them you'd be like a celebrity. People would come up to you and want to talk to you and, uh, you know, practice their English and they would be fascinated by you. <laughs> And they're they're kind of confused that that would happen because of the. Be awesome. Oh gosh, I had a young uh, Dane, a woman who backpacked to Iran. Mm-hmm. Sounds very scary to me, but she said it was one of the safest places she's ever backpacked to. She said it was wonderful. Everybody was welcoming. This is a young Danish blonde woman who you know just put a little headscarf on and traveled to backpack to Iran. Yeah, uh, yeah. And- she said it was one of the best experiences she's had. So that tradition of hospitality is there besides the politics that we are all experiencing yeah it's funny i if i dare to say it's probably we're the most hospitable people hospitable people in the world if i if i may say that and it's on it's back thousands of years <laughs> right right variety of marine minorities so yeah it's a it's an unfortunate stereotype and i think people feel it when they get to know iranians here as well it's like oh yeah you're iranian you know, Shahs of Sunset aside, that bizarre stuff. Oh, jeez. <laughs> we won't go there. <laughs> Active, uh, very secular, very westernized in some ways, but very open to the outside. 
Uh, That's always been the case. Very open to the outside. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If we can switch gears, because I want to get into your area of expertise, which is leadership. Um, Can you define leadership for us? Because obviously people think they know what leadership is, but it it would be nice to get, get a foundation. You know, that, that we spend, I teach leadership both at the master's and PhD level, and it's one of the biggest debates is there doesn't seem to be a clear, clean definition. We argue over that quite a bit. I just, I use a very simple one. I use, you know, any one of us who is able to, or the process of taking a group of people, mm-hmm. uh, helping them fulfill their needs and getting them from point A to point B, getting them to achieve their goals is an act of leadership. Um, and I think it's really important for us to separate the leadership, which is that process of taking a group of people from point A to point B and taking care of them, making sure that they are healthy and satisfied in some ways, and then also making sure that they achieve their goals. From then the leader, um, you know, we tend to often think about the leader as a person, as a personality attribute. It's a role. I think many of us play this leadership role in different spheres of our lives, but not in others. So some of us have a formal title, um, mm-hmm. but we may not be perceived as leaders. We may be just the official person with the title. So it can be a very complex definition, but anyone who moves people from, you know, helps others from point A to point B, uh, takes care of them, makes sure that the, their needs are taken care of, that their goals are taken care of, for me is somebody who's acting uh, in a leadership role. Makes sense. So the question that comes to my mind is, are leaders needed because can can large groups of people achieve great things without these inspirational great figures at the top or could a group have many leaders that sort of get the job done and and move towards the objective you know it's it i wish my personal preference would be to say if groups are organized if people are motivated they probably don't need it But the historical kind of the reality of many cultures shows that we seem to need people. Mm. People, When you start putting groups together to get things done, they don't have the same goals. They don't have the same speed. They don't have the same desires or motivations. So we often need to rely on one person to get things done or organize us. I think we've seen movements, um, the Wall Street movement a few years back, that fizzle when there isn't somebody to guide, be the spokesperson, be the motivational. But then we also have cultures such as many as the Native American cultures in this country where there isn't one single leader. So they have a hunt, somebody in charge of hunt, somebody in charge of food. You know, So leadership is very much a role tied to a particular function rather than necessarily an inspirational figure that takes care of everything. And when we put so much weight, we need somebody to organize when we're so diverse and we want to move forward. But when we put so much weight in one person, I think we're bound to be disappointed and they're bound to start messing up. Um, Not one person can probably fulfill all the needs that we have as complex societies. Yeah. yeah. And when one person becomes very powerful, it often leads to uh, corruption and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, it, you know, the, the, the fact that we all need others to, you know, one person to organize us, motivate us, inspire us is clear. But I think we tend to over rely and it's become too much. Uh, mm-hmm. I teach mm-hmm. leadership and I often think I wish we would stop using the term because it's too much. It's, it's just you can't expect one person to fulfill so many of our needs. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. And you've often mentioned that leadership is something that's learned. 
Yeah. Um, and yeah. it's not necessarily based on these innate characteristics that mm-hmm. uh, we think about. Um, but when I think about that, obviously, you know, um, I think of great l- historical leaders, right? You have uh, Martin Luther King, um, Barack Obama, you know, Mahatma Gandhi, um, some of these people, for example, Obama, you know, he had a great voice and he was a great orator and he was very articulate in the way he spoke and he was highly intelligent. Uh, and that goes, uh, that's the case with, with many of these great leaders. They had these, this sort of charismatic uh, uh, ability to attract people, to motivate people. A lot of those seem like things that you can't just sit there and and practice, right? You can't sit there and practice being highly charismatic, or can you? You know, I think there are certain characteristics that make leadership easy. So if you have good oratory skills, and I'm saying skills is something that can be learned, but clearly there are some people who are better at who have some innate characteristics that make them good at speaking with others or public speaking, or it can even be the voice. Um, you know, right. I think um, clearly that makes it easier. But there is so much that any of us can learn. So I'm not sure any of us could become Barack Obama. I wish we could because <laughs> then there'd be more good leaders around, or any of us could become a Martin Luther King. Um, but many of us can learn to get better at what we do. And even those oratory skills that are often associated with charismatic leadership can be learned and can be trained. Now, not everybody can learn it and not everybody's motivated to. But I think given some basic personality, if you are good at public speaking generally, even if you don't have the Obama level skills, there are some things that any of us can learn to do better. Um, but clearly, this, you know, this, there are some characteristics they're really tough to define, though, besides those oratory skills. But then they're skills. Mm-hmm. You know, so if I could spend – I'm not the one to train you. I don't do this particularly well. <laughs> but if I could, you know, take somebody who has generally an outgoing personality, enjoys working with others, which are kind of maybe genetic personality traits, and spend some time teaching them how to speak, how to use their voice, how to modulate their voice, um, help them develop a vision that is comfortable for them, that is true to them. I think we could build some charismatic leadership skills. Uh, what about innate personality types? You know, mm-hmm. when you think about uh, the stereotypical type A personality, yeah. um, how does that play into leadership? Yeah, so uh, part of my research actually has looked into type A. And what interestingly we see is type A's are these go-getter people who are motivated, eager, you know, always on top of things, always wanting to. Um, they also burn out easily. So there's that other side. There are very few, a lot of the research on leadership says that there might be some things that help you and predispose you a little bit to leadership. Good social uh, ability is one of them. Maybe emotional intelligence might be another. But they don't guarantee leadership. Um, And even when you look at people like Martin Luther King, if you look at, you know, I'm a big fan of French history. Having gone to a French school, Charles de Gaulle, who was so revered, Churchill, they have ups and downs. So if they are these magical characteristics that they have, how come they haven't always worked for them? Churchill was loved and revered for a while and then hated 
for a while. Same with de Gaulle. He was revered. He was mm-hmm. not particularly respected. He became revered after World War II and then May of 68. Again, he did very poorly. So even these historical figures have set ups and downs. So although there's something about them that is attractive, that connects with us, it's as much about what we as followers are looking for as it is about the characteristics of the leader. So I think sometimes they are in the right place at the right time. Obama brought that message of change that he delivered so powerfully at a time when the country was ready for it. Right. Um, right. So it, yeah. it cannot be all on the leader because they are not always successful. There are no leaders in the world who have been successful from beginning to the end. And they've had ups and downs. So mm-hmm. they also still have to kind of, as much as it is both born, it is both born and learned. Let's put it that way. It is right. something with and something you learn because that natural talent if it's not at the right time at the right place if it's not groomed and experienced the right experiences built around it won't get you anywhere if you have no natural talent maybe it will not fit you know work you won't get to that kind of leadership position that easily right combination of nature and nurture and circumstance like so many other things so um, I want to Talk about the cultural element of leadership. You mentioned Native Americans earlier. When I think of how culture can potentially impact leadership, um, obviously there are many different dimensions of culture. One of them that I can think of off the top of my head is uh, individualistic versus collectivist cultures. Um, How do those various elements impact leadership? And then if you can uh, talk about Iranian leadership. I know you've written a book on uh, Iranian leadership called Ancient Leadership Wisdom, which uh, looks at a um, you know historical um, perspective of how leadership uh, has helped Iran uh, get through various you know catastrophes and wars and invasions and so on. And um, there were a lot of lessons that were learned and sort of cemented in the Iranian psyche through all those times. Um, so yeah, take us through, uh, how culture affects leadership and then maybe, uh, talk about Iranian leadership or what you've called, uh, Indo-European leadership, which I think Iranian leadership is a part of. Very Uh, much so. Um, so we know from many, many research projects that what's considered ideal leadership is not the same across cultures. So different cultures have very different ideals of what they consider good leadership. Um, you know, so there's actually a huge research project, also now run by an Iranian Mansur Javidan, who is at the Thunderbird ASU, um, who and they've looked at the 60 different countries, grouped them by category and clusters, and they've clearly shown that although there are some characteristics such as integrity that are the same, you know, everybody wants to have integrity. I know it doesn't look like it sometimes <laughs> because it looks like some tolerate corruption more than others, but every country, every culture you ask says we want a leader who has integrity, for example. But beyond a few characteristics, culture really does make a difference in what we consider to be ideal and effective leadership. So it really is important. So what, you know, the U.S., we have this idea that you just mentioned, this idea of this go-getter, loud, um, good orator who's out in front and kind of carries things. There are some cultures that believe in much more quiet, subdued, 
leadership as being an ideal form? Or is the leader one who makes decisions by himself or herself? Or is it someone who involves the group? If you're from Scandinavia, that group involvement is really required. So you can't be kind of that you know, person who's in front and pushing. So culture does make a difference in what we consider leadership. And interestingly, even with this globalization, as we get to know other cultures, we get to work with other cultures, we still have cultural preferences. You know, if you're from an individualistic culture, you'll want to have that, you know, individual, I, I want to be ahead, I want to be recognized for my individual characteristics. If you're from a very collectivistic culture, you're okay being part of a team. So that team concept is there. Um, I got really interested in looking at Iranian leadership um, when I was asked to do a chapter on mythology and I got to reread the Shahnameh. My Farsi reading isn't <laughs> great. Um, so I use the translation between uh, Farsi and English. But I got to read the Shahnameh and all the stories that many of us have heard, but I had not read fully. And through that, I was looking for themes. Is there Are there some themes of leadership that come about? And it, I was fascinated to see how clearly there are some themes that come across. Oh, wow. I then went and dug um, into some other work. Um, Saadi has a, uh, the Golestan of Saadi, the first chapter is about kings, the, the behavior of kings, the conduct of kings. So he has lessons of leadership. Um, Saadi also has another book that's less well known called the, where he gives advice, specific hundred and some, sixty some advice to leaders. Um, so there is a very strong theme in Iranian literature, which is obviously incredibly rich, and poetry about leadership and what leaders should do. And um, I got some help from several scholars. This is, again, not, I'm not a literary person or a historian. But, so I dug up some work, and there are some really interesting themes. This, and they've stayed the same mm -hmm. for thousands of years, which is fascinating. So you go to the time of the Sasanian, um, you have that same concept of a leader has to have integrity. Their reputation is hugely important. They have to be advocates for the weak and the poor. So you have power, but you have power to use well, uh, to be good. Um, that sense of you must keep your reputation. Don't associate with people who are corrupt. Because even if you're not corrupt, if you are, have corrupt people around you, you will not be able to lead. Um, that even if you get away with doing bad deeds now, you will be punished in the other world. So if you're religious, there's that religious element. That sense of accountability is huge and throughout you know, several thousand years of history. And then there's that really interesting aspect of kindness. Um, a good leader is kind. Very much kind of this father figure that will take care of others that has a responsibility to the poor. You know, and they talk about orphans and uh, widows of how the first responsibility is to take care of those people. Um, and then the humility, that, you know, hubris, arrogance are not okay. But, you know, you see that in um, old writings, you see that in the Shahnameh. Every time the leader becomes too arrogant, something bad happens to mm -hmm. them. Mostly males, but there are a few women in there, too. Um, every time the leader thinks that um, they own the world, something bad happens to them. So that sense of humility that, you know, you, just because you have power, you are not better than others is very strong. And that's somewhat unique. Yeah. Um, I did some work with a colleague of mine. Iran and India share a lot of cultural back roots. 
And that's where we came up with this concept of Indo-European leadership. Both countries have ethnic roots in the Indo-European tribes that came through Asia. Mm-hmm. So we use Indo-European partly because there is more research now about Indian companies and how successful they are with a very similar style of leadership. Um, one of my students, Azadeh Dawari, who just finished her doctorate, also looked at ideals of leadership. Um, she did interviews and uh, collected data from Iran, the United States, and other parts of the world from leaders. And interestingly enough, some of the similar themes of integrity, of accountability, of kindness, moderation is another one, came up with modern-day leaders, Iranian wow. leaders who are now both in Iran and in the United States and other places. So, And that's the same thing you see in India, uh, that taking care of people while also making money. So just because you're taking care of people, you don't doesn't mean you sit back. You're also very active. Um, there's a wonderful story about Nadir Shah invading um, uh, India. If you studied mm-hmm. Iran, which I did not study in Iran, you, <laughs> Nadir Shah kept going back and trying to invade Iraq, uh, India, which he finally did after six or seven tries. Um, one of the things that uh, he was asking, say, he asked his generals, why is it that you didn't succeed before? Now that I've succeeded, they said, well, we were all here, um, but you were not. Very deep belief that leaders matter, uh-huh. that they they do play a role, that they are important, but that role, all the things tell us that if you are not humble, if you are not kind, you cannot lead well. You just cannot lead well. So it's a very unique style that's action-oriented, that's being accountable, but also that kindness that as a Iranian, I grew up, I mean, that was always the thing. You have to be kind. You know, your country was, there were a lot of social inequality, but that sense of take care of people, take care of people was drilled into me um, and very much part of the history. People around me, you know, took care of others, bought houses for people who couldn't, paid for education for people who couldn't. Um, Again, we're stereotyping and generalizing, but that... And so that is a desirable thing to do, that you're not by yourself. You have to take care of certainly your clan and those who are yours, almost your family. <laughs> right, right. So which Iranian leader do you think best personified these these principles? Gosh, going back to Shabbos, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, yeah, you have to. I mean, every one of these people were also the, the Iranian leaders who have been successful. Obviously, you can go back to Kurosh. Who knows what he was like? We have this ideal of what the right. the Great was. But that sense of you are powerful, you can do things, and you might do things that are cruel sometimes, but you cannot use that as your only tool. Mm-hmm. That, you know, your responsibility is to everybody. So I think it's not surprising to see that the Human Rights Declaration was... In Iran, you know, this is several thousand years, over 2,500 years old. Um, So you have that sense of being responsible for others, um, you know, in in great Iranian leaders. Yeah, yeah. So the the whole benevolence thing and the fact that he took care of people that he actually invaded was very interesting. And he's revered across many cultures to this day, right? And you you talk to Jewish people, they know about Cyrus. You talk to others, they they all know about Cyrus the Great. Um, So um, what do you think of uh, some of the recent leaders uh, in Iran? So uh, when you think about Ayatollah Khomeini and then before him, we had the Shah and then his yeah. father. Well, I don't want to think about Khomeini. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I know, but it, it's it's an interesting case, I think, because 
he managed to alter world events in a sense. And he oh, was. Gosh, this, I mean, it's one yeah. of the few revolutions. You know, we have the Russian yeah. Revolution, we have the Iranian Revolution. There aren't that many revolutions. Khomeini caused the revolution. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's it's interesting, and Iranians get very touchy when you talk about the Shah. I've, I prof benefited from the, what he did in Iran, and I'm I was pro Shah, and I think in some ways I I am what pro what happened, what was going on in Iran to some extent. It's interesting because I was a kid growing up there. Obviously, I was younger, but looking back at events, at back at events, some when the Shah before there was uh, an attempt on his life. Um, in 19, gosh, my dates are messed up. But there was an attempt on his life, was very much connected to his people. Mm -hmm. uh, and what you also saw with um, the queen going among people, that ability to touch, to be close, that sense of humility was there. When that started disappearing, that's when the authority in some ways, the moral authority also disappeared. So maybe I'm just kind of projecting what I want to see in my research, but I think when there was a sense of humility of taking care of others and people felt that, mm -hmm. it's okay to have the palace. It was okay not to have political freedom as long as you're taking care of me. But when you start separating yourself from your subjects, to use kind of a very traditional term, that's when things started not going well. I think. And that's when people started feeling like I'm losing connection with this benevolent father figure who's supposed to take care of me. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think you saw that interestingly, um, you know, somebody like Ahmadinejad, and I don't know, I don't want to call him a leader necessarily, but part of the reason people in Iran connected with him was this belief that he's one of us, that he's connected to us, um, that he is humble, that he will take care of the mustazaf of the weak. Um, so, you know, some of these ideals have been twisted and you cannot say that the Iranian government currently is representing these ideals in many ways, but they talk about them. Right. So that they, they kind of bring them up as we're taking care of the weak, we are being, you hear um, the current president of Iran talk often, Rouhani, talk about moderation, which is another theme of leadership in Iran, constantly talking about not too far left, not too far right, don't do extremes. We are, we are moderate, we stay in the middle. So although they may not be practicing it the way it may appeal to a lot of us, uh, certainly the country is facing a lot of challenges, those ideals are still present. How they, they translate them into action is different, but I think they're still present. Yeah, yeah. When you were talking about Ahmadinejad, I oh. couldn't help but to draw parallels to uh, Trump and how he's been able to sort of gain the uh, support uh, of uh, people across the United States, right? So you have uh, people that uh, felt like their uh, rights were being trampled. They didn't have jobs. Uh, their jobs were being shipped overseas uh, and were struggling economically, uh, to be right. honest. And they sort of looked at outsiders as people who were doing all of that to them. Um, yeah. Are there par parallels there? And uh, how do you... Look at Trump. What is his leadership style? Uh, there, obviously, there's something about him because he's been yeah. able to shore up the type of support that he has and uh, through whatever means. Uh, but how how do you see him, and what is it about him that has allowed him to do what he's done? 
So there are interesting parallels in that I think it makes the case for sometimes, to some extent, it's not all about the leader, it's about what the followers or others see in you. So the same people in Iran, if they were listening to what Khomeini said and if they were reading what he had written, they wouldn't have followed him. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the writings and what he actually said was pretty scary. It was not what people needed or even wanted. But I think people projected what they wanted in him and started building him up into a hero. And I, to some extent, that's what's happened to Trump voters. Um, they wanted somebody to come and save them. And Trump just said, sure, I'll do it. So it wasn't as much if they had listened to what he said, it wasn't as or what he actually did. So it's as much a function of what people are expecting to see in their leader and what they saw in Trump. Now, I think Trump is an interesting case. I uh, <laughs> <laughs> On a very neutral level, we talk about narcissistic leaders. Uh, it's one of the traits we use. We use the three, the dark triad often, uh, which is a combination of narcissism psychopathy and uh, Machiavellianism, the ability to manipulate the psychopathy of not killing puppies or anything like that or killing humans, but it's just having very little conscience. He is just a textbook case of a narcissistic leader. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, whether, you know, I don't think he's crazy at all. I think he's very smart, uh, very good at taking care of his own interests, but the narcissistic personality is somebody where everything is about him right. or her. It's, right. All the things are basically, how does it help me? How does it affect me? Um, very And in some ways, a very weak sense of self-esteem because the slightest little thing makes them angry. The, you know, the threat, everything's a threat. But it's everything is about me. And I think that's kind of the defining characteristic of Trump. If it's not about him, he's not interested. Uh, if it doesn't benefit him, he's not interested. Um, he loves those crowds because they make him feel good, you know. Mm -hmm those rallies so it very much and that's not necessarily a good trait in leaders because leadership isn't about you a good leader is really focused on followers on others on people he or she is serving um that clearly is not the case as much as he says oh i'm here to take care of you it's all about him yeah but what what explains this phenomenon of his followers uh just blindingly uh, you know accepting every single thing that he does they're very hard to reason with it's as if, you know, they put their fingers in their ears and go la, 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 la when you try to reason with them. And Trump obviously lies uh, to an extent that we've we haven't seen in politicians. I mean, politicians lie yes. all the time, but a little bit anyway. <laughs> yeah, they, they lie all the time a little bit anyway. But but he takes lying to a whole new level. And to me, I don't think you have to be this, you know, highly educated person to see through that and to realize that at the end of the day, he's he's not being honest. Um, but what explains this sort of blind following of 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 him that his supporters show and this just you know unwavering sort of admiration that they have for him this 40 and, it, and, it, and it's a big chunk of the country right when you look at it it's not just i i, I don't think it's that big of a chunk i think it's about 30 percent uh right which, which is a big chunk isn't it it's a big, it is a big right. chunk right within that 30 percent, i think there are clearly some people who were very much single issue and continue to you know <clears throat> we, we believe in x that he's going to do 
right. business people who say, okay, he's going to take away, you know, do fewer taxes, fewer regulations. I'll just hold my nose and put up with anything else because I don't care about anything. I see. Yeah. I just want that one issue. So we have some of those. I think there are some people who are not well informed. Um, you know, Jefferson, a founding father of this country, was uh, said at some point that if people aren't educated, we shouldn't take their right away to right to vote. We should educate them. You know, having had some contact with the educational system in this country, we don't teach history, we don't teach civics anymore. People aren't particularly well educated about how things work. They don't necessarily read enough, so it's easier to. And I and I think it's not saying it's just people aren't particularly well informed. And then they have a self-interest. They, you know, um, there clearly is an element that is responding. The white nationalist is responding to that hatred. Um, and it's present in Europe. And there's some element of that. Now, not every Trump voter is there, but there is some element of Trump voters that are there. Yeah. Uh, and you just enable them. And he, he speaks to the lowest possible denominator, the, the lowest angels of our nature in some way, you know, the, he taps into that anger and hatred and racism, and it's kind of sad. I don't believe yeah. it's the majority of this country. I really don't. And what's sad is that these people that have had have have been hiding these sentiments now feel free to come out and harass other people and make their opinions known, yeah. uh, and shore up support and build, uh, you know, a coalition around around hate and all these other things. And, that, and, you know, that, and I think that goes back to your question about do we need leaders is yes, when you have moral leaders that encourage the best, the society acts in a better way. When then you run into you know, leaders do have a lot of power to guide, manipulate, influence. So the need for leaders is clearly there and you have one now who is certainly not trying to build up the best. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, but I, I, you know, I don't believe it is the large majority. Um, get out there and vote, people. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> because it's, there's still been a very large group of people who did not vote. I I was teaching during the fall semester during elections 2016, and I had several people in my class who, you know, it's California. It didn't matter much whether they voted or not, but. <laughs> I had several of them say, well, we're not thrilled about Hillary Clinton, so we just won't vote. It's like, that's not, you know, <laughs> a very stupid kind of silly uh, analogy. It's chicken or fish. You don't have a vegetarian choice. You don't have chicken or fish. If you don't pick one, you'll get the other. <laughs> or people that didn't vote for Hillary because they were Bernie supporters. That was just absurd to me. He's not in He's not in there. I mean, it, yeah. I understand political passion and it needs to be encouraged. But when you get to a point of if you don't pick one, you'll get the other. So which one is least right. objectionable to you? Pick one. <laughs> you get chicken or fish. Yeah, you don't have that opportunity anymore. <laughs> so just pick the best option that you have in front of you. So, I think that that has to do with being educated, being willing to, you know, we all have to compromise. And looking at too much, there is not a single leader who will ever represent everything that any one of us wants. Um, there is no ideal person. Is the person good enough? Is it is the person competent enough? Do they have values that you generally share? 
But it's tough. You know, it's tough to say, oh, gosh, I really don't like this part. Do I get to go out and vote? Well, the consequences of not voting are big. Right. As so. All right. So a um, couple other topics uh, that I wanted to discuss. Women and leadership is a topic that's interesting yeah. to me, uh, particularly because I'm a new father to a, uh, a yeah, eight-month-old daughter. Congratulations. Um, thank you. <laughs> So, obviously, when you look at, um, there are some societies and cultures that are more egalitarian. They have more women in leadership roles. Uh, but across the board, uh, historically especially, uh, women did not play a big part in uh, being leaders uh, of societies. It, w- what is the reason for that and what can be done going forward to sort of... Uh, increase the participation of women in leadership um, and to sort of have their voices be heard. Yeah. So, you know, there are clearly cultural factors. I mean, you see Scandinavian countries have been some of the best in terms of percentage of female leaders and variety of positions, business, government, uh, you know, healthcare, whatever, education. Um, U.S. is somewhere in the middle. We could do a lot better. And then you have countries like Arab countries, Muslim countries, where you have very low participation of women in leadership for cultural reasons. Um, you know, I also have two daughters. Uh, I think that this, the solution, things are go through a pendulum. There are times when they start getting better, and now, now may be a time when we're not. But 51% of the entering freshman class are women. Many of them, people getting master's degrees are women. So that educational gap certainly has closed if not closing very fast. Women are equally educated, particularly in this country. Um, What seems to be the primary reason for women staying back is continued stereotypes. We often talk in leadership about when you ask people to think leader, they think male. Aggressive, outspoken, uh, upfront, you know, all the traits that we associate with leaderships are often traits that we associate traditionally with men. Uh, when you dig, though, I mean, most of the current theories of leadership talk about participation and, you know, involving people. Those are often much more phys- feminine skills. But we still continue this think manager, think leader, think male. Uh, so that we have very strong stereotypes that are tough to get rid of. Um, very often what we see in business and government, women have to kind of are this fine line about what's if they behave the way we expect leaders to behave, they often started start not being liked um, because they're playing a male role. And when you're playing a role that doesn't fit your gender, you're not liked. But when they act too feminine, well, that's not a leader. They're too soft. Interesting. So they have a double bind that they get into. You know, having more women role models makes a huge difference. Having Policies and rules and regulations that help makes a huge difference. Uh, Family-friendly policies. Many women, if we want the human race to continue, will have to take a break to have kids. (laughs) Uh, But what we see is very often if we, corporations that allow women to get back into the work with some flexibility, three, four, five, six, ten years, they get back in there and they're fully contributing. When you have little kids, it's a bit tougher. Uh, Parental leave, you know, encouraging fathers to be involved. One thing that um, research has shown really affects women is this uh, work-life balance. They work at work and then they come home and they are still carrying a heavy load, not only of taking care of kids, but now of taking care of aging parents. 
Uh, daughters often take care of their elderly parents more than sons do. So those family responsibilities are social factors. Um, this country hasn't particularly been very forward-looking in providing policies that would allow women to step back into the workplace, that have the support that they need. So it's a combination of social policy that I think makes a huge difference. Daycare. No? We don't have daycare, and yeah. it's expensive. It's hugely expensive. Um, we don't have the family support here. So in other countries, grandparents, aunts, uncles – take care or, you know, grant the kind of the extended family takes care. We're an individualistic culture. People live kind of on their own. So social policy helps. You know, European policies, Scandinavian policies have been huge, and they've played a role in helping women succeed. The research doesn't hold up that women are dramatically different from men. You know, we, we, we don't necessarily have, you know, we might have different styles of doing things, but in terms of wanting to lead in terms of once you give the opportunities, they perform equally well, they can be equally bad and equally good. <laughs> so there's nothing magical. Uh, but it is a lot of obstacles that make it difficult for women to lead. And when they do get into leadership positions, that double bind and that constant stereotype makes it really hard. Right. Um, women are leaving high tech and Wall Street because it's not friendly. You know, it's just not friendly. Right, right. Uh, and we're seeing talent of 50% of the world. <laughs> it's as simple as that. <laughs> yeah, and when uh, when you look at societies where they have, uh, you know, women that participate more in various fields and in politics and so on, they do much better. They're high-functioning societies yeah. when women, women are involved, especially when they're highly educated and... and yeah, the, um, the UN has some really interesting yeah. data that says one of the best things you can do for economic development is to increase the education of women, even one or two grades, because that impacts their family, that impacts the health, that impacts how they make decisions. So one of the best investments any country can make is to increase the education of their girls. Right, right. Um, so, it, you know, we're just basically wasting 50% of the talent that's available. And as any business person would tell you, one of their toughest challenges is to find good people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And by not having policies that can help and give opportunity to uh, you know, we're, we're, we're losing that. Uh, Christiana Amanpour talked about an Iranian. Uh, recently, I talked about the big hoopla we all make about mentors and mentors and female mentors. She said, don't, we don't need any of that. Just get out of our way. Give us equal opportunity. We'll be fine. You'll and do that, it yourself. You don't need we'll do it ourselves. Uh, so, and that's partly true is removing social obstacles. Cultural culture takes time to change. Um, you know, a country like Saudi Arabia is going to take a while to change the beliefs that they have. But, you know, I, I have a lot of female Saudi students. They're amazing. Right. They are amazing. They just, they, they may not have the opportunities, but they're amazing. I'm um, sure. I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. All right. So uh, last but not least, um, I wanted to get your take on what's needed in terms of leadership to face some of the challenges of the future. So we have an ongoing threat of uh, nuclear war. We have you know, climate change that we need to deal with, uh, some of the more immediate challenges in this country, as we talked about, such as, the, you know, the massive polarization of our politics and identity politics and the rest. Um, are you optimistic? And what does it take to, uh, what kind of leaders do we need to kind of pull us through some of these challenges? And I think there are always challenges, right? But I think we're, we're, we're facing a unique set of challenges as, as we go forward. Yeah, I, 
You know, that's a kind of a really big <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> Hit you with the big one before. Yeah, from before. a leadership yeah. researcher point of view, I, I think one there are a couple of things that are badly needed. Not that they're lacking greatly, but they're needed. One is integrity, um, having the integrity, which means being true to your word. Um, and then is principles, just standing for something and allowing people to coalesce around those. I, I you know, from the political arena, just knowing where you stand helps tremendously. So having strong principles, um, we are lacking kindness. You know, it's, it's a bit, I'm, I'm being very Persian here, <laughs> very Iranian, but it, it's the sense of having integrity, having some principles, and having kindness, being kind to others, thinking about, okay, how will my words, my policies, my actions hurt others? What we see now with immigrants and pulling families apart is just unkind. It's just unkind, and it's unthinkable. So, you know, those are some of the things that I think we need in leaders and encouraging is have some integrity, have some principles, and think about others. Leadership is not about the leader. It has to be about others. And if you're not taking care of as many people as you can, there's no way anybody can take care of everyone. There is You cannot be leading well. Uh, and that's, I think, the polarization right now is making this very, very hard. Um, so is there hope? Yeah, I'm hoping. Pendulum will swing, right? Pendulum will swing back. Um, We'll be back to not perfection, but kinder place again. Uh, but who knows? Yeah. Fingers <laughs> crossed. Educating the, the, the future. Right. right. All right. Well, uh, Dr. Nahavandi, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I know you have a busy schedule, so I really appreciate it. Um, I very much enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It was very fascinating. And thanks for all the contributions you've made uh, to your field. Okay. And uh to the world in general. Really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. All right. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please review the podcast on iTunes or any of the other platforms and share it with your family and friends. And stay tuned for future episodes. I'll try to release one every week. It may be tough to do that in the beginning, so please be patient until things start rolling. Thanks again for listening, and thanks for your support.